my generation, people saying, yes, I want to work, but work is not my life. I think the next huge wave of transformation is people transformation. Okay, here's the business challenge. Here's the work that I need to get done. Which component of this makes sense to do with full-time employees? What can be farmed out to AI? What can be handled by part-time employees? Of all of this, what can be done remote? Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce Podcast, where we focus on the intersection of the human experience, AI, and the future of work. Why? Because we are living through the most digital and disrupted workforce in history. Our mission is to help you prepare, navigate, and thrive. Thank you for caring about your future, for joining us on this journey, and for sharing these insights so we can all grow together. Stay connected by following us wherever you listen and subscribing to our YouTube channel. PDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest, the top voice in the future of work, Stephanie Nadi Olson. We love this conversation because Stephanie is an inspiring, human-centered leader changing the future of work through We Are Rosie, a flexible work platform serving over 25,000 marketing professionals, redefining how marketing works and one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S., This episode is powerful because we explore why flexible work is here to stay, our innovative layer cake model, how the American dream is changing, and why generative AI is going to impact your business and possibly compensation. You're going to love it. Let's dive in. Stephanie, your father was a refugee and he beat the odds learning to write English and read. And then he has his his college educated kids as his legacy. And that yeah. must have left a powerful impression on you. And you built We Are Rosie and your company pays it forward by creating freelance opportunities for over 25,000 people from diverse backgrounds and marginalized groups many of whom who may not have a chance to get this kind of exposure and access without your platform. And there has to be a strong connection, right, to this thing that you created and that inspiration from your father and your father's dream. The question Alex and I thought about is, it seems like the American dream is changing. Do you see the American dream evolving between your father's vision and the people that you're helping? It's such a good question. I mean, I'm undoubtedly influenced by both of my parents. So neither of my parents were able to go to college. My father has an elementary education. My mom has a high school education. And they were able to, in America, build this really incredible life with this great legacy with their kids and now 10 grandkids and all of it. And to make a really honorable living, right? My parents worked really hard. They worked really long hours. They didn't get time off. They didn't have, you know, vacations, but they put one foot in front of the other to really build a a life for themselves and for our family here. I think, you know, the big difference that I'll say is between that generation and what I saw for my parents, which was really centered a lot around survival, right? Like I need to pay my bills. I need to be able to make a life in this country. My dad didn't know anybody here. He didn't have a safety net at all. And my generation, where I hear so many more people saying, yes, I want to work, but work is not my life, right? Like, I'm okay with just working to make a living. And there are other things that are really important to me that I'm not going to give up for work. Whereas in my parents' generation, it was like, you have to give up whatever you have to give up to make a living. And I think there's a big mind shift there. 
And I certainly saw that in my early days. You know, my dad worked at Brooks Brothers at the mall as a tailor for over 20 years. So for much of much of my childhood and part of my adulthood. Um, and when I graduated from Georgia Tech and got my first job at Microsoft, he was understandably over the moon, right? Because he knew what Microsoft <laughs> yeah. was. He could tell people back home. Um, he was so proud. And I left that job after like a year and a half and he could not, I mean, he was crestfallen. He was like, yeah. have I not raised you right? How could you, <laughs> you were going to work here for 50 years. This was it. You were done. Right, you were yeah. set, you know? Yeah. Um, and I said to him, dad, I, I want more, right? Like I learned a lot here and now I, I'm ambitious and I want more. And that was really the first time that I was really confronted by the, the big difference in our mindsets around security and safety and survival and me being able to think about thriving because I had so much privilege of growing up in this country and being college educated. So, so I want to build on this. There's a quote from you that we absolutely love about the future of work. And you said, the future of work is giving people the ability to work in a way that gives them the life and the career that they desire and deserve. And related to this, I was on a flight back from Costa Rica over the holidays and serendipitously, I sat next to the dean of a top business school. So we get to talking about the future work and everything that's happening and how work's changing. And he says, you know, Alex, I have a family friend. She's 30 years old, highly, highly educated, very successful. And she basically believes that, you know, traditional work is oppressive, antiquated, and hierarchical, that anyone working full-time in an office is basically old school, and that we should all be working fewer hours, you know, Tim Ferriss, four-hour-a-week style, collecting passive <laughs> income, spending more time on the beach. And it brings up this idea that you were already talking about, which is how purpose and meaning have shifted, right? And they've shifted so much, especially through the pandemic, through the Great Resignation. So I'm curious, Nate and I are curious, what do you think the younger generation, you know, say 35 and below, sees as the career they deserve now? I think, and we, we have a lot of people under 35 in the We Are Rosie community, and I've really spent a lot of time with folks in our community and, and talking to them and trying to gather this information so I can make sure we're bringing the right opportunities. What we've learned is that people cross generations want work that capitalizes on their passions. So not just what you've done, which we call pedigree, all your resume stuff and your college and all of that stuff, um, but your passion, like what do you actually care about and what kind of work is going to light you up every day? It might be working with a specific client or brand. It might be doing a specific type of work. And then what is going to give you that sense of purpose? But also we cross that with how do you want to live and play? So we ask everybody that joins our community to tell us what is important to you and how you balance your life right now. And we acknowledge that that might change. It might change in three months. It might change in three weeks. It might change in three years. But we have worked hard to create an environment where people can share that information, not feel ashamed or scared, and know that we're going to try to match them with work that capitalizes on their pedigree, everything they've done up to this point. And if you get that right, we have found that people that are passionate about work outperform people that are a higher pedigree match. So on paper, you may look like a perfect match for a type of work, but if you're passionate about it and less, maybe you have less pedigree, you're going to outperform somebody that's high pedigree, low passion. And of course, if you're matched to work that allows you to live 
and work in the way that you desire and deserve. So that's where we're saying, do you only want to work 20 hours a week? Do you need to take summers off? Do you need to work from Kansas for a while while you're caring for a sick parent? Whatever it may be, like we want all that information because we know that if we can thread the needle and find work opportunities for you that allow you to have that type of life, you're going to knock it out of the park. And we've seen this come through in our satisfaction rates with Rosie's, but also with the satisfaction rates that we have from our clients, where over 90% of our Rosie's get extended and renewed. So it's working for everybody. That's fantastic. And that's, to me, the way it should be. So often work is pushed at us and this is the way it is. And honestly, and I'll, I'll be the one who says it, if you don't like it, too bad, so sad. And then what, not only are you asking, but you're being in the dance of life and making it work and, and you have the data to show that this is working better. Yeah, it's really a beautiful thing because when we have projects or opportunities on the We Are Rosie platform, we get to go out to our community who we think will be a fit based on all of the things I just described. And then they have an opportunity to say like, oh, thank you. Actually, you know, like I, that brand doesn't align with my core values mm. as a human, right? Like maybe they have an issue with the social media giants. Maybe, you know, we had, we landed this women's shapewear company that is a really big shapewear company. And we we're like, this is great. And there were a lot of women on our platform that said, no, thanks. You know, like I just, I don't want to perpetuate the idea that women need shapewear to be out in the world. Wow. And so we've really been able to pay attention to giving people that um, flexibility and decision. I want to talk about that passion just for a second and contextualize it through the lens of your own experience. Was that what you were lacking when you left the corporate advertising world? Because from, from the outside, of course, it probably looked really good. You were very successful. You had a great role. People probably thought, hey, she's made it. And I'd love to know what was kind of going on inside for you. And how did that lead you to this very different path? Well, I had just followed this very traditional hierarchical career path, which I think many of us have, right? You graduate and you get the job and then you want the next job and the promotion and the more money and the whatever. And I did that for my career, right? I was very, you know, I was a good immigrant's child. I was like gonna put my head down and work hard and get all the accolades that I wanted. And, you know, I remember when I worked at AOL, I got this like salesperson of the year award and I was probably the youngest salesperson at the company. I think I was maybe 25 or 26 or something. And um, my boss gave me a heads up. He was like, Steph, you're about to get this award. Just be prepared. You're going to get called up on stage. And you're going to talk about the work you're doing. I was working with a wireless carrier um, at the time. And um, I remember thinking like, oh my God, one, this is great. The recognition is obviously, it's really meaningful, but I have to get up there and talk about how we, we helped sell more cell phones to people that couldn't afford them and didn't need them on Black mm. Friday. <laughs> right? And we made a ton of money doing it. And I just remember thinking like, I'm not passionate about this work. I'm passionate about the people I get to work with. I'm passionate about my clients, but the impact this work is having on the world, like I don't even know if I, it's really aligned with me as a human being. And I proceeded to work at smaller and smaller companies thinking that I could get that sense of purpose and the ability to impact change and all of those things. And I worked at some tech companies. One of them sold to Yahoo. One of them sold to private equity. One of them was venture backed. And through those experiences, I realized that I just wasn't super passionate about 
getting ads on the internet, which is what I was doing. There's nothing wrong with it. It just didn't light me up. And I, I was, I started to pay attention to the things in my life that did really light me up. And actually when I quit my last job, when I just had this like crisis of conscience and was like, what am I going to do next? I actually made a list. I mean, it sounds really dorky, but I made a list of like the moments in my life where I felt the most fulfilled. And it was the work that I had done with um, recently resettled Syrian refugees here in Atlanta. It was the work that I had done with women who had postpartum depression and anxiety, which is something that I had been through. And the, the thread that moved through all these moments where I felt really fulfilled and passionate about what I was doing was that I was supporting people who were overlooked, underestimated, misjudged. And I think that goes back to my childhood too, and seeing how my father has been treated. But that was my passion. And that's when I had my light bulb moment of the way that we're working in marketing does not work for so many people. And because of that, we're judging people, we're alienating people, we're mistreating people, we're marginalizing them, we're burning them out, we're giving them health issues. And I thought, gosh, like, all these people don't feel like they have anywhere to go. They're stuck in corporate America, miserable. Yes. We can do better than this. And that was the beginning of We Are Rosie. I was like, send them all to me and I will, I will give them the career and life that they desire and deserve. Oh I'm getting goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, that is, that is so beautiful. Send them all to me. I identify with one part of your story in a very strong way, which is that when I was in uh, digital marketing and the digital transformation space, that was a great career. I was really good at my job. I advanced to the place where I had a whole support team. I could do a lot of the things that were initially hard for me, now kind of in my sleep. I was making good money. And what I realized was that these companies were taking advantage of the way that we could help them solve a lot of for, for them, important business challenges. And there was nothing wrong with that. But so much of it was around the promise of efficiency through digital transformation and the lack that I felt of thoughtfulness around people transformation was really driving me crazy. And it started from something that was irksome to something that I could no longer abide Ignore. by. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when Nate and I got together and said, hey, there's a lot of people that we we want to help to find more more purpose and meaning and and flow and flexibility and different ways to to lead and different you know leaders to lead them. I think the next huge wave of transformation is people transformation. It's how we access talent. I mean, it's already happening. Um, the corporate world is just a little bit slow to adopt, but the wave is coming. It's here. Yeah. And yeah. so it's going to be really exciting to see how this unfolds over the next, I mean, I don't want to say decade, because like more than half of the U.S. workforce is going to be working freelance in the next five, six years. So, you know, how is everybody going to step up and, and change the way they think about work happening within their organizations? It's, it's an exciting time. I think it's a very exciting time. And um, the accelerators, the macro disruptions that are driving your business model is uniquely suited to take advantage of what's happening right now. So you're going to be sitting in a beautiful place. Speaking of that, I read your 2023 uh, Rosie report and it has this very interesting model. So this report is available for free on the website. It's fantastic. Y'all should download it. But it talks about the future work of trends, but there's a specific part that Alex and I honed in on that we want to elevate, which is this layer cake 
workforce, which you call a team comprised of full-time, part-time, freelance, remote, and in-office workers. It's this new layer cake that's happening out there that we're kind of, we've been dancing around and now we're taking it right to the model. Talk to us about this coming to fruition and how challenging it is to get traditional organizations to adopt this kind of a model. Yeah. I mean, the layer cake workforce is absolutely the most efficient, effective, innovative, and inclusive way to run any organization. And, you know, I have had a lot of conversations with huge brands over the years where I'm saying, if you're thinking about all the work that you have to do for the next year, let's say, and then you're trying to back that into your FTE headcount, you're so um, beholden to this idea that you have to have somebody 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year working on this problem, that you're not going to get the exact expertise you need. You're not going to get fresh thinking. You're going to have slack in the system sometimes. And then sometimes your system is going to be pushed beyond its max and you're going to be burning people out. And you really need to adopt this accordion model where you have your core team of FTE employees and then you leverage you know, part-time contract work. Maybe it's agencies, maybe it's consultancies to flex your model up, open like an accordion and then squeeze it back in when you don't need all of that work. And the beauty of a layer cake workforce where you've really built an operating system where you can access all of this talent is that you can get exactly what you need when you need it. The talent Mm. is out there, right? Like people are already working in this way. It's just, are you set up as an organization to tap into this expertise? And what we found for our clients is they cannot believe the caliber of talent they can access through contract or consulting work on the We Are Rosie platform that they could never have in-house. Like they're like, one, we couldn't even afford or attract talent like this to come live in, you know, Houston, Texas, for example, full time. But now you're you're giving us this talent for 20 hours a week for six months. So now we get to inject all of this brilliance and um, input and point of view and experience into our organization for six months. It's going to make our whole organization better. And so we think about people coming in and out of the workplace kind of constantly, which is a big operational lift, right? I get that. It's an operational problem to be solved. But what you get out of it is greater inclusion. You get people that you would never have working for you full-time on your team. Um, You get people staying in the workforce longer. So you kind of fix the leaky bucket problem of so many people from marginalized groups, particularly women who leave the workforce after having children or after reaching a certain age where they become caregivers for maybe their parents. So you're keeping these people around and then you're getting all of this expertise, right? Like it's, it's such a win-win. And so it's been a beautiful thing to see so many Fortune 500 brands adopt this model with We Are Rosie because we've seen the change it's created within their own organization. We're part of their diversity initiatives. We're part of their inclusion initiatives. We're part of digital transformation and people transformation. We're part of innovation. Um, And so it's been a blast to see everybody's kind of mind open up to really recognize all the good that can come from adopting a layered workforce. It's cool to hear you say they're taking our platform and what we've provided them and weaving it into their narrative about how they're transforming. That's smart. Super smart. Yeah. I have a question related to this. And it's about culture. So in a layer cake workforce, who owns culture? 
And do you, and does We Are Rosie, worry about trying to build that cultural connective tissue between company that you're contracting with and the freelancers that you represent? I love this question. We used to get this question all the time in the early days, particularly because We Are Rosie has never had an office. So we use our own model. So we're a layer cake company. We have never had an office. We are in five different time zones. And people are like, but what's the culture? And I'm like, the culture is the mission, right? That everybody came here because they see themselves in this problem that we're trying to solve for the world, where we want to show the world that allowing people to work in a flexible manner does not lessen the caliber or quality of work you're going to get from them. And that's our culture, right? That everybody has a chip on their shoulder about this problem. Everybody wants to solve it. And also, we all want to show the world that you can do it remote. So that was like my answer about the We Are Rosie culture. Alex, to answer your question about our clients, it's co-created, right? Like I think this idea of owning culture is a little bit outdated. And I think, you know, for the longest, I mean, you come from the tech world too. It's like, well, we're going to throw a ping pong table at you and we're going (laughs) to have beer beer. Fridays. (laughs) Yeah. Like I don't want that culture, right? Like when I was a young mother, that's not culture for me. I'm trying to get the hell out of there. Like I need to get my work done. And so I think culture is always a collaboration, whether people realize it or not. And I think culture should be tied back to mission and purpose. And I think when it's not tied to mission and purpose, that's where you get to somebody pushing a beer cart down the cubicle aisles on a Friday. And so what we have is our clients hire We Are Rosie because they want some of our culture, right? Like they know that they need to be working in a more modern way. Um, But also they have a lot to teach us too, right? Like they've been at it for some of them 80 years. And so it's totally co-created between the Rosies that are um, dropped into these organizations and the company that they're working for. But we found that everybody learns from everyone else. And our clients really include our Rosies in as much as they can, which is a great thing. Like our clients that have the highest satisfaction rates, they don't treat our Rosies like they exist outside of the company. They're invited to the all hands meetings. They're, you know, at the the parties virtually most of the time, Um, but they're really included. And that gives people that sense of satisfaction, but also that flexibility again to engage in a way that's meaningful and makes sense for them. I'm glad to hear that. And the beer cart on Fridays is not enough to drown people's sorrow of not belonging. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. To make me feel great about missing my kids' bedtime. Yeah. Cut it. Stay here all night. You get yeah. pizza and beer. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> you spent your career in marketing and advertising in the early part, and then you build We Are Rosie to change the game. Along comes this thing called generative AI. And it is changing the game in a new way. So the buzz is everywhere and it's, there's a lot of conversation about what is this going to do to marketing and advertising. And our question to you is, is this revolutionary new technology going to help the We Are Rosie mission? And how are you ushering the Rosies into this generative AI era? Yeah. I love generative AI. I love all the talk and the hype about AI. I don't think it's overhyped. I think it's exciting. So we, um, as you can imagine, because our clients really see us with 25,000 experts at our fingertips as kind of their source of knowledge on so many things, we've had a lot of clients come to us and say, you know, we need an AI expert, we need a POV on AI. So we're providing those both at a corporate level, but also through our talent. So we, of course, Mm. have a bench of talent that does have AI expertise that we can, again, 
drop into our client just to be kind of a um, a mentor or guide for C-suite executives that are navigating all of this, maybe just part-time or a few hours a week or one, you know, kind of 20-hour block. From my POV on what this could mean for marketing and advertising, and we're seeing this a little bit now, is that I think some lower level tasks are going to be automated. But at the core of marketing and advertising, and I always want to remind people this, like we're in the human connection business, right? Like, mm. yes, our job is to sell you something at the end of the day, but it's also to give you an affinity for the brand that we're representing. And it's to find that human connection with you so that you say like, I, I see myself in this brand in some way. It's aligned with my values. I have a high favorability for them. AI is not going to get there, right? Like that is such a nuanced, human, emotional, psychological task. I'm not worried about marketing disappearing or the humans of marketing disappearing, but I'm actually quite excited about some of the boring stuff going away, right? Like I don't want to traffic 150 ads and 200 DMAs to get, you know, like, okay, great. Like let's have that handled um, with machine learning and AI. Um, And then let's allow people to do work that again, like, exercises our giant brains that you can't get anywhere else. And so I think it'll be interesting as it unfolds. I think in the short term, we'll see, you know, people freed up to do work that only people can do, which is exciting, actually, for a lot of people. They'll get rid of some of the monotony and um, stuff that can be programmed. Absolutely love that answer. (laughs) Yeah. And the human part is what matters most. That's why this podcast exists, the intersection of what's happening to the human experience and all this technology. But do you think that the generative AI belongs in the layer cake? It seems to me like it does. Isn't it one of the pieces? I think absolutely. It's one of the ways that you're going to get work done. And I think this is the um, change of thinking that, Alex, you asked about this earlier. We didn't even really get into it, but how are people adopting a layer cake workforce? And I think it's like introducing anything new to people. There's like a ton of repetition um, because everybody wants to default back to how they used to do things. It's human nature. But we have to get people thinking about, okay, here's the business challenge. Here's the work that I need to get done. Which component of this makes sense to do with full-time employees? What can be farmed out to AI? What can be handled by part-time employees? Of all of this, what can be done remote, right? Like let's start there from an inclusion standpoint. And so that's the way we're helping guide our clients to reconsider um, distributing all the work that they have that needs to be done. I think AI will be an important part of that. I mean, related to that, we were just keynoting at an event for the IIDA over the weekend. That's the International Interior Design Association. And we were talking a lot, first and foremost, about what are our human superpowers in the age of AI and helping to alleviate some of those fears and help people understand exactly what you were talking about, which is that this is a massive lift to allowing you to do more of what you are passionate about, to do more purposeful work, to make higher order decisions and get rid of more of the mundane in your life and in your workflows. Related to that, this audience, largely architects and designers, was very interested to know in how AI is going to affect their compensation, right? Now, our understanding of your journey is you've been very focused on fair compensation, you know, throughout your career, you're very focused on fair compensation, you know, for your rosies. So how do you imagine this AI boom in marketing is going to impact compensation? Are companies going to start to expect more for less? What do you see? I hope not. (laughs) 
right? But <laughs> going back to what is human nature, yeah, probably. And we're gonna, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, realistically, mm-hmm. honestly, and, yeah. and I wish that wasn't the case because if you have people doing more higher value tasks, they should be paid more, right? And this is where it gets tricky and this goes into the whole compensation around marketing and advertising, which is like, if I'm thinking about your brand while I'm putting my kids to bed because I can't turn it off, I'm not getting paid for that. But I may have an epiphany that's going to give you the greatest Super Bowl ad on earth, right? (laughs) And so it's really difficult in this kind of high value work, this consulting, this thought work that is, is a big part of marketing. It's not all of it, but it is a big part of it to we've always struggled to be fairly compensated for it. And now what we're saying is people should be doing more of that, right? Because the monotony, the box checking, the, you know, the very measurable stuff might be done by AI. So we're going to have to reconsider what does success look like in a world where we're obsessed with measuring everything and prove to me that you're worth $60,000 a year by measuring for me everything you did. And so again, I think this is the exciting thing about, you know, disrupting the way work happens is like, we have to reconsider how we value talent and how we reward talent and how we measure air quotes, but like what people are doing. And I think that that's going to be really interesting. uh, uh, And it's going to be a forced evolution as AI starts to pick up more of the measurable tasks. I think that is a phenomenal pearl of wisdom for everyone. The measuring stick that we used to have for what is valuable work and how should we measure and incentivize and compensate people, we have to collectively, given the context that we're in, given this exciting new technology, step back and go, that seems really dated now. Maybe we should talk about the new, the new version of this. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we have to blue sky it. I I think I was talking to someone the other day. I met this guy once and I wish I could remember his name, but he had built um, like a huge manufacturing company and had acquired manufacturing companies all over the world to build this empire, right? It's not a particularly sexy business, but it was a solid business. It was big. He had never had to lay anybody off. And he said that he measured the success of his company by like the divorce rate of his employees how many of his employees were getting married or having children, Um, how many of his employees were homeowners. And he was really looking at success in just this totally different way. Whether you agree with all of that or not, to me, it just kind of opened my eyes to like, maybe we're not looking at the right things. And maybe there's stuff, if we were going to rebuild this from scratch today, we would not be talking about any of it. We wouldn't be talking about you know, in office, 40 hour work weeks, you know, traveling all the time, we would just be thinking about it so differently. Yeah. I think that's the right approach of the, um, I'm going to put them in frameworks. There's a capitalism framework and we all know what that has been around a long time. There's some good elements of that. There's some things that are pretty dated, but then you start to get into this human experience and you get into a planet centered conversation. Are, are we taking care of this place that we live on that if we don't have, we're all screwed, you know? Yeah. So we, we start to look at it through these different lenses and go, wait a second, what is the right incentive narrative compensation for, for the new context that we're in? And I love that we just thank you for that pearl of wisdom and that we could give that back to the audience. And you've taken me right into this human centered conversation, which is, in the past, we've been so focused on other things, but this narrative, this human-centered leadership, this human-centered experience, employee experience conversation just keeps getting louder. 
And, and when you started We Are Rosie in 2018, you wanted a more human-centered way of working. People aren't being treated fairly. They're not getting the access they deserve. So tell us about that aspiration. How has it changed? Because the last three years have been tremendously disrupted. I mean, maybe it's evolved a lot since then. But then do you have a powerful story or two about this is how that manifests? It's how it comes to life in We Are Rosie. Yeah, I mean, we have so many stories. And that is one of the many gifts we have of having this community of over 25,000 marketers that we get to talk to every day and hear how this impacts their life. You know, one of the things that has always stuck with me, um, and again, you know, so much of this ties back to my childhood and my dad growing up in refugee camps, is this idea of dignity, right? And coming out of dignity is access, opportunity, and wealth are the three big things that I think about that are so often missing, right? Like, who has access? Let's go back. Who has access to the best colleges? Who has access mm. to getting the best grades in those colleges? Who is at that college but had to work full time to pay their way? And so their grades might not reflect it, but man, they were a hustler, you know? So who are all these people that are being left out of the conversation or overlooked that we should be providing access opportunity and wealth to? And that was really the bedrock of We Are Rosie is that I felt like we were ignoring a lot of really smart, talented people, and we were hindering ourselves because we were a pretty exclusive way of work. Um, and so we weren't getting the best work. We weren't getting the most creative work. And we were leaving a lot of important people out of the framework. And so I think, you know, as we grew, that was our goal, right? And so we would never, this is why we don't just put people on projects based on pedigree. You know, we've actually found that that's much less of a predictor of success than you would think. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are other things that are much more important, the human component, you know, do you want to work this way? Do you want to work these hours? Do you care about this company or brand is a much higher indicator of success. Um, and so that's the way we built the company. And we, through that, we've been able to put people into organizations that never would have been there. So I'll give you a a couple of examples. There was one woman that, uh, was actually going to start raising her seed round for a technology platform that she was building was a marketplace that she was building. She was super passionate about it. Former makeup artist that wanted to build this platform to connect people with kind of up and coming um, brands, makeup brands. Um, but she didn't have a tech background, right? She was a makeup artist. And so she, in all of her wisdom, was like, I want to get experience working at a tech company and a marketplace. And she had applied for all these jobs. And as you can imagine, the, the AI that's going through a resume, which is a dumpster mm-hmm. fire, is just weeding her right out. <laughs> But she comes to We Are Rosie and she tells us this, right? I'm passionate about tech. You wouldn't get that from her pedigree. Um, And we got her a a project, like a one-year project at a Fortune 10 tech company. And it changed her life. And would they have ever hired her to work there? No. Like she never would have even gotten an interview because again, this is AI gone haywire, but that filtering process is a mess. And so um, the clients were like, we absolutely love her. Like, we want to extend her. She's changed the way we think about things. She's brought this totally new perspective to us. Meanwhile, she's getting all this tech experience. Her contract's getting renewed. She's making money that she can use to pour into her business. And she's making a living in in a way that doesn't have her working 80 hours a week. She's capped at 40 hours a week. So she could still work on her startup on nights and weekends. And it was just a win-win, but that never would have happened in any other way. Um, so that's an example of someone just getting an opportunity. And then 
I'll tell you about, you know, there are other people in our community who are saying, my job makes me go into the office every day and I live in Dallas and my husband is on an army base in the Northeast. So he's separated from me and my children. So I'm single parenting. I have to go into an office every day, which does not light me up and I don't want to do. And I'm separated from my spouse. So she joins the We Are Rosie platform and we give her a year-long contract where she can work remote and now her family's reunited. Mm. Imagine how much better work you're going to get out of somebody when they're connected with their family. Like when you, like we're splitting up families to say you have to work in office when we have the technology. It's crazy. Crazy. In your report, you had 77% of marketers surveyed prefer remote work. I mean, so many people across industries <laughs> at some point in your career, for sure. We had uh, Nick Bloom on the show, who's, uh, you know, uh, in, in your rare air of the, the top 50 voices of the future of work for the, that Forbes listed out, people have considered him the prophet of remote work. And he told us that a you know, staggering almost 40% of Americans still want to work full time uh, from home. They don't want to go into the office ever again. Mm. And we, in some ways, are surprised by that. But on the other side of it, it really makes sense if you were trying to diversify your life or build a startup or you're going through some of the challenges that you described and you create a space for that. And it's, it's fantastic to hear just how thoughtful you've been every step of the way. And thinking about what is the human condition? What are people looking for? How do we solve all these problems? And it can't have been easy to, you know, architect this business step by step while we're going through, you know, one of the biggest experiments in work in human history and work is changing so fast to think about all these unmet needs and the evolution of where people want to go and how to honor them and how to honor people that would not necessarily have had these opportunities and get them the opportunities like the, the woman that you just described at her dream tech job. It's amazing. I, I want to talk about this with a specific lens toward the mindset that you've had to have doing all this. Your business is lifting people up. You're a female founder. There's undoubtedly tons of challenges along the way that you face, bootstrapping for years, the challenge of getting people to understand this business and contextualize it. You know, what is it? What, who are you? What are you? How do you do it? Tell me about this layer cake model and then growing your business through the pandemic. Resilience, adaptation, and mindset. That's critical for entrepreneurs. And we would argue for, for all professionals navigating the most disrupted and digital workforce in human history. So what has been your mindset facing these challenges? What wisdom can you share about resilience and adaptability. Yeah, I think um, it has been challenging, Alex, you're right. And as a recovering perfectionist, you know, it's tricky, right? Because like, nobody's done this before. There's no shortcuts. Like that was one of the hardest parts of building We Are Rosie. It was like, I can't go, it's not like, oh, I want to franchise a business. So let me go find, read about 10 companies that franchised, you know, and like find a blueprint. We were building everything from scratch and figuring it out as we went along. And so the two things that helped me a lot was level setting with my team frequently that we're going to make mistakes and mistakes are okay, right? Because we don't know. 
everything. And our hope is that we have the right people in the room to help us think through things so we don't make as many mistakes, but we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And we should just call it when it happens and figure out you know, how to not let that happen again and keep it moving. And along with that, one of the things that I adopted early on in my leadership at We Are Rosie was a tinkerer's mindset. But it's this idea that we're not afraid to try things and we're not afraid to take big swings, but nothing is permanent, which gives a lot of people anxiety, right? Because they're like, oh, we're changing the way we do this and then we're changing it again. But when you're growing at the pace with which we've grown, you have to have a tinkerer's mindset and you may get it 50% right with some, some new process that you've implemented or new tech that you've adopted or a new way of doing things. And I think just that willingness to say like, oh, that wasn't a hundred percent right, but like, here's the good parts of it and we'll keep that. And then we're going to just keep turning the dial until we get it steady. But we also have to recognize that because the world is changing so fast, because our business is changing so fast and we're growing so quickly, we, we may reach that steady state with something and it may become unsteady in three months because mm. that's the name of the game when you're building a startup and your company is growing at this rapid clip. So I think those things really helped us. It has become part of our, part of our culture. You know, if you don't like change, if you don't like ambiguity, like this isn't the workplace for you. And it's no, it's a judgment free statement, but that's just, this is what is happening here. And it's out of necessity and it's out of, you know, the idea of disrupting the way work happens. It's, we can't just like drop something down and say it's done. It's never going to be done. You're introducing a ton of, you haven't said this word yet, but I'm hearing it all over what you say, psychological safety. You're, you're creating space for psychological safety inside of the company, psychological safety through societal change. You're creating psychological safety around experimentation, tinkering, try this, let's all learn together. You know, it's okay to challenge existing structures and ideas. Nothing is sacred. I mean, that's a tremendous culture to create adaptation at that, at that speed and scale. Yeah. I mean, we've attracted talent that... My first hires at We Are Rosie were people that I couldn't have gotten a meeting with six months earlier. Like we have been so lucky with the talent we've attracted because of what we stand for. And it's really, to your point, Nate, it's made me realize like we have to walk the walk on what we stand for because people were willing to sacrifice pay. They were willing to sacrifice titles to come work at We Are Rosie in the early days because of what we stood for. So the last thing I want to do is to get these brilliant minds in our organization and then bait and switch them or waver from what we're all about here. And so I've always tried to be really honest with people about what they're getting into so they can make an informed decision and to take great care of the talent that we have, because this isn't easy. You know, it's not easy for anybody working here every day because creating change is difficult. Like being the front runner, creating a new paradigm and work is, it's a lot. It's a labor of love for sure. I want to take this concept of psychological safety one step further, ask you a final question, and then we're going to take you into a speed round, Stephanie, Uh-oh. if you're down for that. All right. So in the past, we were taught to compartmentalize absolutely everything about ourselves and our lives and leave that outside of work, right? There was the conversations that were safe to have and the conversations that were not safe to have at work, but we can't ignore these life-changing events and hide ourselves anymore. And that's become clear. 
as a for example, you know, your dad was a Palestinian refugee, and I can't imagine that you don't have feelings or opinions about what's happening in the Middle East right now. And increasingly, people want to talk about war. They want to talk about politics. They want to talk about race, religion. They want to talk about justice at work. These are things we feel intensely about. They affect our consciousness, our sense of safety, and of course, our ability to show up for what we're required to do on a day-to-day basis, right? So the future of work must become more inclusive to honor this global talent pool that's working from everywhere, that's being hired from everywhere. So how do we deal with this? How do we foster inclusive human conversation to bridge these topics and do a lot more than just check the box, right? How do we do that? Or are we going to be forced to a place where we say, you know what, these are just too triggering for the workplace? It's a complex question. And I think, you know, I'm not going to have a clean answer on it. I think it's going to be messy. But I don't think that we can ever get to a place where we um, put on our pretend hats when we go to work, but none of this is happening. To your point, Alex, I mean, I had to take a sabbatical uh, at the end of the year because of what's happening in Palestine. And I have family members involved and it's been um, gutting, right? But I was able to see the impact that things like the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the murder of George Floyd had on employees, right? Years ago. And I remember saying to them, like, if you can't work today, don't work today. And it's messy, right? You can't put a policy around human emotion. You can't say, hey, anytime there's something rough happening in the world, you don't have to come to work. Like that's just, it doesn't fit within the capitalist framework. And that's just where we're at, right? Like we live in a capitalist society. So it is a bit of a messy, you know, you're treading and trying to find the right ways to care for people. And I don't think that there's ever going to be like a single answer to it. But I think for leaders, we have to lead with vulnerability and say things like, you know, hey guys, it's heavy today. You know, like the news is heavy, whether you have family impacted or not, whether you feel a personal connection to what's happening in the world. As humans, this war is really tough or this news is really tough. And I think that's like the absolute baseline, you know, that we need to expect from leaders in the workforce is just an acknowledgement. And I think people underestimate how far that will go. There's no way to pretend this isn't happening when you're at work. I mean, if you have people just in permanent suppression mode while they're at work, are you also suppressing their creativity? Are you also suppressing their ability to be innovative if we're telling them to show up as half a person? Yeah. Mm. I hear a lot of validation in there. So acknowledgement, being vulnerable enough to say it's okay and I, I feel this too, that acknowledgement, probably the validation of this is happening. We, you, we are in community watching this unfold and it's scaring the hell out of all of us. Yes. And then you're creating that beautiful thing that's not trying to fix, which is so much of a business centric mind. We're not trying to fix this. I just wanted to hold some space and be here with you to acknowledge and validate that this is really scary. Yeah. I love that you acknowledge your own effort for self-care. And it's sort of this, this really important thing to say. It's on one hand, it's how do we create a container to have these conversations? And at the same time, how do we care for ourselves? And then how do we think about the business? And I want to be 
you know, very open in this conversation and say, you know, I was, I was raised as a, as a reformed Jew and I've had very complicated emotions going through this from really mixed feelings about the state of Israel to how they're responding, deep grief and empathy for the Palestinian people and shock and horror at some of the anti-Semitism that I've seen here in the United States and trying to kind of reconcile all these things as someone who is always thinking about the greater good for humanity, who always wants my fellow person to thrive, no matter what their background is, no matter you know where they come from or what their story is. And, you know, in, in discussing this with you, I know if you and I were to sit down for a coffee, just the two of us and have a conversation, there may be moments where we would meet edges. And I know that you and I could get through that conversation in a good place. But a lot of people don't have those tools to have mindfulness around these things. And so I'm a big believer that we need to have more of these conversations to give people the tools to be able to lean in when somebody says something that's triggering or uncomfortable, to find space, to find equanimity, to find grace, and find our way through with a thought around what does the greater good look like? as opposed to the ego states that so many of us revert to, which is, you know, what's in it for me and, and how do I get my needs met? It's, it's that balance. It's a, it's a very delicate dance. It's, it's tricky for sure. And I completely agree with you. And it's, it's also a trauma shield, you know, that ego mm. state is like, if I stop being angry or ragey, then I'm going to have to feel some really tough stuff, you know? And I think, we're seeing, you know, so many people around the world in that state right now. And it's not a productive state, but it's an understandable place for people to be. And so I agree. The the more conversation we can have and the more honesty we can have and the more st- stories we can share to to have that joint understanding is is so critically important for a better future. That was so powerful. Thank you for your candor. That thoughtful interaction, the beautiful interaction you two just had and that is the message that needs to be shared. So thank you for that. Stepping into our final segment, our speed round. This is a lot more light and fun. And whatever is true, whatever's in your gut, whatever's on your heart, just throw it out. All right. Many of the biggest or most successful businesses that we recognize today were started in times of great disruption, recessions, and that sort of thing. Um, Pinterest, Venmo, Slack, WhatsApp, Uber are examples of these companies that started in bad times. So what advice would you give female entrepreneurs looking to start the next big thing and disrupt the status quo? Um, you're, you're definitely more capable of doing it than you give yourself credit for. And the difference between you and all these people that have done it is that they just went for it. So just put one foot in front of the other and get going. We've talked about the power of having a chip on your shoulder. And some of my early life experiences left me feeling less than uh, being bullied, for example, in school for a number of years and a sense of a chip on my shoulder and a powerful desire to achieve. Based on what I've read about you, you've carried this as well, a passion to win and an incredible work ethic. What is your understanding of drive? Is it something that can be nurtured or learned? Or does it only come from inequity or hardship? I think it's personality and uh, life experiences create drive. And I think it's kind of there or it's not there. 
Well, we applaud your drive, Stephanie. That's for sure. <laughs> it's there. It's clearly there. <laughs> Three years into these massive disruptions, what does the future of work mean to you now? Um, it means giving people more access, opportunity, and wealth that otherwise would not have it. Looking ahead to this year and beyond, what are the top three things that you envision for We Are Rosie? Mm, I think we are going to continue to go head-to-head with um, consultancies and advertising agencies. We've rolled out our managed service operation where you can get entire projects done. and they'll be managed by We Are Rosie instead of just accessing our talent within your organization. I think we're going to continue winning um, budgets from different departments within companies. So we continue to obviously be centered in marketing and advertising, but how is HR thinking about the future of work and their marketing talent and accessing that talent? And so I think we're going to see some interesting things there as we you know, continue to expand um, within organizations that want to look more like us. Um, so that's really exciting. And I think we're going to continue to grow uh, the, our pool of talent, right? And so, you know, we've never had budget to get these 25,000 people into our community. We we're bootstrapped for a really long time. Um, and it's spread through word of mouth and necessity. And there's such incredible demand to work in this way. And I think as the world continues to shift in this direction, the knock on the door of, of employers is going to get louder and louder. And we're going to see a lot more companies coming to us and saying, hey, how do I access this talent? How do I run a, a more efficient organization? How do I get more expertise? And we're going to be able to help all of them, which is really exciting. Super cool. What are two powerful lessons you have carried forward from your childhood that you share and continue to lift for your daughters and why? Wow. Um, I think one of them is kind of the value of figuring things out. So my parents worked really long hours. My dad worked at a mall for most of my childhood. And so he didn't get home till 930 at night sometimes. And my mom was working really hard and raising three kids. And so one of them is certainly we didn't have any helicopter parenting in my household. It was like, you got to figure it out on your own. And I applied myself for college and I signed myself up for the SAT. And I I did all these things. And of course, my kids, you know, we want to be really present for them and we work hard for that. But I want them to know, like, if you can figure something out on your own, I'm going to push you to do it. Um, because I think that people are capable of a lot more than we think. Um, and it's that fine balance between like being present, but also like, hey, you can do this. So go ahead. Um, I think that's a big one. And then just the value of hard work. I mean, I learned it from my parents. They worked really hard to make ends meet for us. Um, and I want my kids to work really hard. And I tell them all the time, it's not about how good you are at something or what score you got. It's just, did you put hard work into it? Are you proud of the amount of work and effort you gave to this thing that you were trying to accomplish? And um, I think that those, that's the behavior I want to reward in my children. Beautiful lessons for all of us. Yes. Stephanie, thank you for being such a healthy and powerful disruptor modeling the way in the future of work. What you all are doing is teaching all of us and showing us, lighting the path, right? Showing us the way. You're inspiring diversity, inclusion, a thoughtfulness, a human centricity that we all can grab onto and and learn from and be inspired by. And it's been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. 
This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I I love your podcast. I'm really excited to be on. And thank you. Thank you so much. And Stephanie, we know people can find you at wearerosie.com. Where else should they look for you to connect and learn more about you? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I share um, all sorts of thought leadership on there. And wearerosie.com is the place to go. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast to find show notes, guest details, and connect with us. The best way you can support the show is to follow us wherever you listen and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To help others in the future of work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with those you care about. Remember, disruption is a gift. Disruption is a gift.